Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. During the Cultural Revolution, many young urban Chinese were encouraged, if not ordered, to move to the countryside. Millions of young Chinese people in high school and university moved to rural communities ostensibly to receive re-education from the poorest lower and middle peasants to understand what China really is, to quote Mao Zedong at the time. Many students remained in the countryside until the end of the Cultural Revolution almost a decade later. One of these young Chinese people was the mother of Amei Burrell, who turned these stories into a graphic novel, We Serve the People, My Mother's Stories, published by Archaea last year. The book is roughly split into two halves, her mother's hard work on a rubber plantation in Yunnan and her struggles a decade later to restart her education upon her return home. Amei Burrell is a cartoonist and illustrator from Sweden. Her work has also appeared in Adventure Time Comics, Hip Hop Family Tree, Study Group Comics, and a number of publications in Sweden, Denmark, the UK, and Chile. Today, I'll ask Amei about her mother's story, both during her time in the countryside and when she returned home. We'll talk about what it was like for her to turn these tales into a graphic novel, and what may be gained from expressing them in a visual format. So, Amei, thank you so much for joining me today on the Asian Review Books podcast. Perhaps it's best to start with your mother, you know, the main character of We Serve the People. Could you kind of briefly tell us her life story? Hi, Nicholas. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so, as in, as I've um, kind of documented in the book, she was born and raised in Beijing, in China. Um, when she was around 16, the Cultural Revolution started, and that interrupted her studies. Um, she was in seventh grade, I think. Uh, she was then kind of, well, definitely against her will, sent down to uh, the south of China, to Yunnan, across the country, which was at that time a three-day train ride um, to get all the way down to um, a rubber plantation that she was working on, uh, or working at, <laughs> is the correct preposition. Um, she was... Uh, stuck there for around 10 years before she was finally allowed to go back to Beijing, which was what she wanted during all of those years. Like, her main goal was to just get back home. Um, And once back in Beijing, she wanted to uh, continue her studies um, as they had been interrupted in the middle of her education. Um, She met some, like... Some people around her did not want her to continue her studies. This was like um, quite a few struggles she had to go through um, at the time. And basically, because she was then around 30, I think, um, when she got back to Beijing, there was actually an age limit for how old you can be if you want to enroll in a university. So in China, it was impossible for her to like, um, try and get a higher education, um, an official higher education. She did get a higher degree of some sort, but it wasn't a university degree, which I think she always 
felt like she lacked. So because of this, she wanted to go abroad where there was where there wasn't an age limit on setting a, like a higher educational institution. And through family, um, she got a study visa to go to Sweden and uh, has since remained in Sweden. She still lives there now. And in the end, um, she did end up working within education. Uh, so it's pretty funny how that kind of ended. <laughs> so what's happening in China more broadly during this period of time um, that you talk about in your book, um, especially for people like your mother? Well, so at the time, the Cultural Revolution takes off, uh, which means that for people like my mother, um, basically kids between um, like being in sixth grade until uh, graduating high school, their education is, is interrupted, or all education is interrupted. So uh, the school is stopped. They don't have any more lectures. All the teachers are held at the schools um, to kind of be re-educated and think about, you know, the the errors they've committed, and everything just comes to a halt, basically. Um, and it stays that way for maybe half a year to a year, where I think she told me she basically just loitered around for a long time. At one point, they were called back to be in school, but there was no education. So they would just, you know, read the newspaper, hear what um, Mao was saying in the newspapers, and, like, maybe go visit, like, the, the general countryside of the cities, like, try and help out in places. I think the army was kind of taking care of the schools, like, you know, making sure everybody was coming in, taking roll call, but then just letting them go about their way. So I think it just, everything kind of grinded to a halt. Everything was in upheaval. And um, as a kid, it was mostly like, ah, there's no more school. So obviously kind of the, the, the first, say, half of your book talks about your your mother going into the countryside to, to work on this rubber plantation. Um, I wonder if you could share a bit um, of her experiences, you know, as, as as she related them to you, and then as you relate to us through through your book. Yeah, I feel like um, so. She's always been telling us stories about her going down to the south and just what happened during the Cultural Revolution when she grew up. Since me and my brother were really small, so I feel like I've heard these stories like a million times, but at the same time, I can't remember like all the details of them. But one of the main things that stuck with me was like, and this wasn't until one of our later conversations when I was working on the book, was that she only realized what an irreversible decision it was going down to the countryside when she had finally arrived after that three-day train journey and feeling such a loss of power um, and kind of hopelessness, but then deciding that the one thing she had to do was get home. But apart from that, all of her other stories about her time down there is isn't isn't so aren't so depressing, I would say. Like they aren't like filled with sadness or anything. They were all pretty matter of facts. Um, 
and uh, just about these small funny stories that happened to her during her time there. Like one time, I think, her and her friends, because it was a really warm summer day, went to a, like a river that was close by the plantation where they worked. And all the old workers uh, at the plantations would tell them, don't go there. It's like dangerous to bathe there. But they were like, it's too warm. Let's go. <clears throat> and when they came up, most of them had, um, what do you call them? Those kind of snails that stick to your body and drink your blood? Oh, <laughs> what leeches? Are they yeah, leeches. It was like... The river was filled with leeches, so they all had a bunch of leeches on their bodies and freaked out, obviously. Um, and other like small stories like that. Um, and in between that, just talking about like her day-to-day -day life, um, that before she became a truck driver, she was just working on the mountain. They would have to basically cut down the trees and turn the soil on the mountains with like old tools like hatches and hoes. So it was all manual labor because you couldn't like drive a machine up the steep hills and then you'd have to hand plant all the rubber trees. And then there were different like sections of workers. So some workers would work with the older rubber trees where they would get up super early, like maybe three or four in the morning to go up the mountain and set taps to the rubber trees to tap the rubber like rubber fluid that comes out of them and I remember looking into how this works because when I was writing the book or like when I was working on it I was like I need to get an understanding of how all this works so I can actually like tell other people <laughs> um, but yeah so it was like quite a bit of just like the day-to-day -day life during those 10 years and things that stood out to her like oh, that, that time we jumped in the river and got leeches on us, or that time we got a dog from the military and everybody loved him, so everybody gave, like, the little ration of meat they would to him. Um, so he got this, like, beautiful fur, and one day he disappeared. Yeah, so, yeah, a little bit of everything, I would say, but slice of life, mostly. You know, it's, it's interesting because I think, you know, for people who don't, necessarily think about the cultural revolution very often i think there's like an image of you know that it's this unleashing of youth energy in service of you know mao zedong's political objectives that eventually went kind of outside of anyone's control and became this huge sprawling thing um that was very bad for a lot of people um but of course your mother doesn't seem to fit in this in the story at least as she's expressed it to you um she's not particularly political uh, but it's also true, I think, at least as the story she's told you, she doesn't necessarily look at this period of being in the countryside. I mean, clearly she she wanted to go home and she was not happy that she was in the countryside, but it's not it, – it, it, unlike, I guess, perhaps other literature written about this, it's not kind of a list of all of her – all the injustices and trials and tribulations that, that, that she went through. I, I, guess, I, I guess how do you feel that she kind of – looks back upon this period of, of working of, of working in, in Yunnan? I think, like, it's interesting because, like you say in the beginning, <clears throat> the view of it is that cultural revolution, the Red Guard, and the chaos that came with it, um, which it was. It was 10 years of turmoil and chaos that changed millions of people's lives forever. Um, and all because of it was like a political game to high up politicians. Um, but for, I think her story represents kind of 
it's in my eyes it represents this like powerlessness but then still fighting your way through it you know because there is so what stands out to me is like there's so little control of what you can do everything is decided for you and all you can do about it is the way you perform the tasks or the way you live your life within this control and i think it is like that perseverance and that stubbornness and that kind of trying to make your way in a world where you have so little control that's what i feel her story is about and i feel like that's probably a lot of people's lives during that time because there was not really any control by the common person like everything was just going on around you and i think a lot of people were trying to just keep her their heads down to not you know end up on the bad side kind of um yeah yeah that's that's how i feel her story like what her story communicates about about people so one one thing we serve the people does is it it kind of continues the story after you know after your mother's time in the countryside of course the whole second half of the book is based on um is not, is is kind of tells us the story of what she does when she comes home and tries to restart her education tries to figure out what her what what her path in life is after this decade long disruption could you tell us a bit more about that period of her life yeah um so that period once she got back to beijing she felt like a great aimlessness because um as all of this youth came back to their home cities um because at the time you couldn't decide what job you would take um or you need you couldn't choose what job you wanted to do uh, all you could do was wait around for the government to um just place you at a factory or at some kind of workplace and then take that job but because like billions of young people were coming back at the same time the state was scrambling to kind of find jobs and there was just a very long wait for around i think it was a year or one and a half years as well um and that's when she thought of trying to kind of make up for lost time she felt quite a big shame of only being like having the education level of a 7th grader but being almost like 30 and she wanted to um make up for that so she started studying by herself um using her older brother's um old school books and textbooks having them to help her um and just trying to make up for all that lost education and i think that became like one of her big goals in the time after coming back from the countryside where those 10 years felt like a void to her like a waste of time basically um and she was then trying her best to do anything she could to make up for it and get some kind of higher education and a degree um but there were a lot of people who tried to or there were some people not a lot of people but there were some people who tried to like put sticks in the wheels so to say because uh, various reasons i would say <laughs> yeah i mean a lot of like there's 
it seems to be that that her ability to get to continue education is dependent entirely on on whether or not various bureaucrats like her or not. You know, obviously the ones that don't like her try to get in in her way, but then she has conversations with other bureaucrats who can overrule them and allow her to continue her education. Yeah, it's that same like um, loss of control, right? You you couldn't decide for yourself what you wanted to do. Everything you wanted to do had to go through um, your bosses um, on many levels. Like it had to go through your manager and then the manager's boss and then the entire institution you were working for. And there there was this bureaucratic like path you had to go through. And if somebody didn't like you, they could just stop stop it at any point. Um, and I think it, in the story, in the second part of the book, the main story, with two of her managers not wanting her to study, um, she's told me that they felt it was useless studying because why would you want to study when you have no control over your, over your life and that whatever you study doesn't affect the job you get. And then because they they had kind of like insinuated this to her, but she had not listened to them. They got like mad or angry at her for not listening and not not being respectful of their opinions, basically. Um, uh, yeah. And I think that's really interesting that for such a small petty reason, you would like to maybe not ruin somebody's life, but you want to make it way harder. So I'd like to to shift now into talking about talking about your actual process for making the book. Now, I mean, normally I think on the show we have um, people working in prose, so it's always like, "Oh, how did you um, write the book? What was the process of writing like, etc." Um, but of course, "We Serve the People" is a is a graphic novel, so it kind of combines both writing and illustration. So I guess if you could talk a bit more about what it was like to kind of plan out and and to write the book and to and to draw the book as well. It was really it was a very long process. It started it spanned over wow, maybe 4 years or something like that because I worked on different parts of the book uh, at different parts of my own education. So I I have a degree in graphic storytelling and comics and I made the very so it's it's laid up chronologically the very first 11 pages um I made before I started my degree. The like middle chunk of around 40 pages I made in the middle of my degree, and the last chunk of almost 60 pages I made uh, after I had graduated. So it was kind of following me along in my own artistic journey. And I, oh, the cause, first, because yeah, now, now that you mentioned it, you're right, the visual style does change as you go through, and I didn't even realize that until, until you mentioned it just, just now. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty funny because so the first eleven pages was actually the comic I applied to my degree my degree with. Um, they requested as like an application for my portfolio to uh, apply to my degree was like tell a uh, a story in comic format um, spanning eleven pages to just see if you could if you could produce something that length because it would only get longer and longer. Um, as you, as I studied, um, and I thought this small story was really interesting and self-contained. And then I pitched those eleven pages to a Swedish book publisher that took me up on 
on the book and gave me a deal for basically the first half of the book. And I made that. It was released in Sweden. And then I was like, I would really like for this book to reach a bigger audience, reach a bigger market. So I took that first half of the book and pitched it to Arkea. And then they liked that, but they were like, it's a little bit too short. Could you please make it longer? Um, and then I tagged along, like I, I added that final chunk of her time in Beijing and her kind of um, road to studying and then leaving China in the end. So it was like quite a long process when I think about it. But every time I worked at it, it was very concentrated and small. Like I did the entire last part of the book, maybe three months. I did the middle part of the book, maybe over half a year. And the first part of the book, like, yeah, I don't, that was like over a month or so. So like in concentrated time, it wasn't so long, but in actual time, it spanned over many years, actually. Um, but I think that um, if I had, if I wasn't studying comics, maybe this would have been pure prose. And if I was studying something else, maybe it would have taken a different form. But it was the medium I felt the most fluent in at the time. And it felt like then it was the correct medium to tell the story in. And as I am a very visual person, and not necessarily super confident in my writing, it made a lot of sense to make, let the images speak a lot for themselves as well, even though it's pretty packed with text. But <laughs> Well, I mean, this, this may be a bit of a leading question, but what do you think you, you gain as, well, I guess for you as an author and you know, also for readers in working in this more visual format? For me, it was just time to like mull over the things a bit more. And actually a big part of it was really getting familiar with her life at the point. Like I, all the research led me to find a bunch of photos of how were her living situation at the time how did the room look what kind of things did she have like what kind of lights did they use um how was the day-to-day -day routine it gave me such a deeper understanding of my mother um so that was really a big part for me like it gave these stories i've heard for so many for so many years another dimension and i guess that's now that I'm talking about it, like I guess that's what I could give the reader as well, because <laughs> I guess it's that saying like a picture says more than a thousand words, and I I wouldn't want to say that my pictures necessarily tell that much, um, but hopefully, along with the photos I have in the book, it gives the reader a better sense of space and place, and. I think we understand things a bit differently when we see them than when we just imagine them because we're all kind of, you know, locked in our own contexts. And if you've never seen something of a specific thing, how can you imagine it? Because you only have like your own points of reference um, and that would maybe make it skew it or distort it. So hopefully this can give a like more rounded image of how life was at that point. So I have, I think, one more question about the book. It's actually something that's only implied in the book. Um, so in, in that very first section, the, the 11 pages, which you submitted, I think, is way back when you were 
applying for 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 degree programs. Um, it's a story about um, about your mother as she's a truck driver. She's she's been she's asked to um, to uh, bring along a few drivers who are stuck who missed the bus. Um, you know, one of the drivers is this very celebrated worker, uh, works hard. Um, so she drives them to where they need to go. The truck gets stuck. Someone else comes along and 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 pulls them out. Um, and then the story kind of ends there, except um, the punchline of the story is uh, your mother says, and I never met that driver again for 40 years, and then turns to the man next to her on the couch and goes, isn't that right? Um, and so you don't tell the rest of the story um, as, as as to how your, your mother um, and, and this driver kind of reconnected uh, after 40 years. So I have to ask, what happened? Well, it's... Um it's kind of funny. So um, in that story, it might seem like it's implying that um, they they are my parents, but he's actually my stepdad. Um, and that also explains like the, the vast amount of time that passes in between. Um, so they only met in that that kind of long journey between Kunming and the plantation, which was a three or four day journey, I think. And she was aware of him. He was aware of her afterwards. And then they never really spoke again at the plantation during the time they were there. Maybe they would not or anything or something like that, but nothing more. Um, and then she went back to Beijing. He went back to his hometown. Um, she went through the rest of what's in the book and then she left for Sweden um, where she met my dad, had me and my brother, and they stayed together for a really long time until in the end, it didn't work out, so they got a divorce. And at that point, I think one of her friends from this time, because it was like those those university years, but spent on a plantation, right? So it was some of her closest friends, like that was her, her, her crew, so to say. Uh, they told her, you, you remember that guy you went on that long drive with? Um, he's still not married. So they did this like matchmaking thing for her. I was like, you should really get in touch with him. You should really, here's his telephone number, just call him, you know. <laughs> and so I guess she was at a point where she's like, yeah, nothing lose he seemed like an okay guy why not um and she gave him a call and they i guess they just hit it off because as i remember she would be on the phone for hours hours and hours and hours just talking to him and i think they decided over the phone let's get married <laughs> without even having met each other <laughs> which i find like wow that's insane <laughs> um but it's still i mean it worked out um they they she flew to like meet him and get married and then he moved to Sweden and now he lives with her in Sweden um, and they have a great time. So uh, I think that was like one of the stories she told me after they had gotten married. Um, I don't ever remember her telling that story like back when she was together with my dad still. <laughs> um, but probably like I bet me or my brother would have asked, like, well, how, how did you even know him? And then the story kind of came out. Um, so that's, yeah, that's what happened. 
Well, that well that clarifies. I mean that that explains a lot. Because um, again, I I I, I kind of read that bit and I was like, wait, what? And then just and then, and then you just kind of move on. It's like, no, wait, what? How did this happen? Um, but it, but it really but but it really sounds like uh, that. Um, especially in in our conversation, you, you've kind of mentioned stories that are not part of the book because um, I mean obviously you have to kind of pick and choose what goes in there. Um, and uh, and it really sounds like there was a there was there really were a, a wealth of stories um, shared by your mother about this time. Yeah, there there's so many more, honestly, and I would have loved to put more in there. Um, but it didn't really fit this like the journey of this book. Um, and in my mind, I still turn around like, oh, it would be nice to make another one with more of the other stories. Because as you say, there there's just so many. And apart from that, I find the way my grandparents lived and their lives uh, also to be super fascinating and interesting. And I would love to do something with that in the future as well. But yeah, that is time will tell. If I will get a chance and have the time to revisit that, either like you know officially in like a book form, or who knows, maybe in a web comic form or in a zine form, it's just I find like human real stories super interesting because most of the time they're they are like people say stranger than fiction because life just throws you around and then you have to like try and flail and keep yourself afloat somehow. And I just find it so interesting how people do stay afloat and how people survive. So with that, thank you for listening to our interview with M.A. Burrell, author of We Serve the People, My Mother's Stories. One actual last question. Um, M.A., what's next for you and where can people find your work? Well, currently I'm working on a small children's book. Um, I've been wanting to work with something with less text and more images for quite a while, but that's still in the making. And in the back of my mind, I'm turning around some more, some more of these stories, some more of other stories that I would love to, I would love for them to see the light of day as comics sometime in the future. Um, but in the meanwhile, you can find my work on Instagram um, under the, my, my handle is just M.A. Burrell, as it is. Or you can reach out to me on Twitter if you want to know some more. Just DM me. It's the same handle, M.A. Burrell. Um, and I think that's where, we're, where those, those are the only platforms I'm on. But you can see some of the, the art I put up there if you want. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The Asian Review of Books podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Um, we go to you subscribe, continue listening to us, rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. If you want to support us, continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Catherine Menon, author of Fragile Monsters. But before then, thank you so much, Amay, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me.